Hey, Mana Drainers, how is it going? I'm Andy, the Brass Man per Basco, and you're listening to episode four of the Vintage Mana Drain podcast. Today, we're talking to my buddy, Dwayne Haddix. Dwayne goes by Cutlex on the Mana Drain. He's a workshop pilot. The two of us have worked pretty closely together on a few workshop decks that are a little off the beaten path, and I thought you might enjoy hearing about them. We got three decks of the week this episode, so make sure you check out those lists at themenadrine.com. And here we go. You refuse to play any colored spells in general, right? Yes, unless there is an alternate cost, I will not play it. So would you play Mental Misstep? I can and I have. The crowning moment of that was casting a Mental Misstep on an overloaded... What was the one mana? Um, Vandal Blast? Vandal Blast. I got a Vandal Blast that was overloaded with a <laughs> Mental Misstep once, and it was great. I think I still lost the match because, you know, reasons, but it was a great moment. That is That does sound pretty great. I can't... I can't disagree with that at all. <laughs> That's amazing. What are some other colorless or colored spells with alternate casting costs that you've run? Dismember is the big one. I really like Dismember. Mm -hmm. It's a great sideboard card, and I think that really opened up workshops to be able to have a lot of flexibility. Before that, it was very difficult for shops to deal with Trigon Predators and Heretics. So now, or after that printing, like you can basically run that as a removal spell, as a catch-all, and you can catch a bunch of boogeymen. Other than that, I think the other big one that people are familiar with uh, is um, Met Phyrexian Metamorph, which is just another crazy spell that got printed. That block was just full of crazy spells. <laughs> because the two of us have spent a lot of time brewing Absurd Strange shop stacks before, I thought it would be fun. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit as I think a lot of people kind of complain that the deck is samey or boring, but I know the two of us have taken the card mistress workshop to many different extremes. Oh yeah, everything that's been good from back in the day running Terra Nova and Espresso and Martello all the way to, you know, Rage Extractor shops. So fun stuff crazy gamut of decks let's actually talk about terra nova for a bit because i know that you had linked me a deck before oh yeah yeah this this deck is pretty cool terra nova was a deck that was really popular in the the delver metagame back when the delve spells hadn't been restricted yet but basically it's like colorless land still and that was kind of neat if you liked your opponent not to be able to play any spells until they died, which was a thing that we did for a while there. But this list, uh, I really like this list. This was a list for, by Ra Raphael Forino, who played it in the Star City Games Power 9 series in June this year. And I really like it because it really harkens back to the days back when shot players could lock out their opponents. I mean, he really can't because all of the lock spells have been restricted. Chalice... Thorn, I'm really surprised that Sphere hasn't been restricted yet, but that's another topic for another conversation. 
But this list is pretty cool. It looks kind of like the traditional Ravager list that's running around, but instead of a bunch of the guys with activated abilities, he's running Traxos, Metamorphs, Chief of the Foundries, and full Null Rods. So it's it's pretty neat. Yes. Let's back up for like one second and give like a high level. Right now, at this time, if you're listening to this 40 years in the future, as we know you will be, uh, the the deck that people call workshops, or they might call it Ravager Shops, what are the key cards in that that make it, make it that deck as opposed to some other workshops deck? Well, I mean, the big thing is that you have a big mana base. You are running more mana than basically any other deck in the format. And your mana makes more mana than other people generally. You're running Telerian Academy, which, you know, is on par with most other vintage decks. But the namesake card, uh, Misha's Workshop, is makes a ton of mana. So you've got that. You've got your Ancient Tombs. You've got Soul Rings. You've got Mana uh, Crypt. Some play people are running Mana Vault. You know, you're generating a ton of mana, most of it colorless, to fuel artifacts. And generally, you're going to try to use it on either dudes or how shall we say, resistance to decrease your opponent's tempo. So Sphere of Resistance is the classic one here. To key off of what you said, I think something that gets underlooked about shop stacks is that every deck can run five moxes. Many do. Nowadays, a lot don't. But because a workshop deck is all artifacts, you can use, you can use any mana. Right, you don't you don't need to use the mana that's just for artifacts. You can use any mana because it's all colorless. Whereas, um, oh yeah, a, a Delver deck doesn't want a Mox Emerald because <laughs> all the spells cost blue or red. Uh, but Workshop doesn't care. If it's good mana, it can run it. Yeah, all of the mana basically is available to you, bar you know silly things like Mox Amber that has to make a sort of colored mana. <laughs> but yeah, you've got everything. You've got the mana's greatest hits, basically. <laughs> so that's, and that's true. Basically, that's going to be true about all the decks we're talking about today, because that's that's the beauty of a workshop deck, is you just have the best mana in the format. Yeah. And you can yeah. also run colorless lands, right? Which is nice. You don't have to worry about, oh, yeah. oh I'm running too many wastelands. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like the evolution of the shop mana base over the years could probably be a topic for an entire show. But, you know, that's sort of esoteric and not really generally attractive. But like, (laughs) it's kind of interesting that there hit a turning point. And it was, I don't know if it exactly was him, but it was right around the time of Lodestone Golems printing where all of a sudden all the colored shop decks just sort of disappeared aside from a few like little splashes in the pan. Yeah, that's my memory too, is that um, before that point, there were a lot of workshop decks that were, the first workshop decks were five colors, and then sort of these one color decks got popular. And then around the time Lodestone showed up, they started, people started moving to entirely colorless lists, which is now the the norm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of funny because it's, Uh, You've been playing and been active sort of sporadically, but a lot longer than I have. So I don't even have memories of the five color decks. I just came in right about the time when the colored decks were winding down. Yeah, those decks were, I think, like four City of Brass, four Gemstone Mine, and a bunch of restricted spells. Yeah. (laughs) 
turns out Tinker's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if you compare them to now, they look so incredibly inconsistent, and they were, <laughs> but the power level is also crazy high. I mean, the ability to to tinker out whatever you want or or demonic tutor for a strip mine when you have a crucible in play, offense and stuff like that. It was, oh, yeah. It was pretty great. Yeah, and I, I think... But at that point, the rest of the they hadn't printed enough artifacts to be consistent enough with the artifacts, so the colored man or the colored spells were really, really worth it. And those early decks were very based on these lock pieces on trying to make your opponent never play any spells. And over time, particularly over the past five years, but over time, a people got a little better at being lock pieces. B lock pieces were very good, and a lot of them got restricted. For any listeners that haven't played through that era that are kind of new to vintage for the longest time if your shop for a shops player if your opponent played a spell you were probably going to lose so you literally were trying to keep your opponent from resolving a spell <laughs> that's true that's terrifying and true but and as as the lock pieces got restricted they also kept on printing better and better aggressive creatures yes yes for and sure. Yeah, and that kind of led to where we are today, which is the most popular workshop deck is kind of, I think the closest thing Vintage really has to a pure aggro deck. It just kind of dumps a bunch of very efficient creatures on the table. Yeah, I mean, it's very strange. It's it's interesting, and it sort of reminds me a lot of the old Tiny Robots deck, where the deck can go super aggro and dump seven power on the table really, really fast and scale it faster and just dump all its counters and kill you on turns two or turns three. But the opponent can't take a super aggressive hand because they also have Sphere of Resistance and Phyrexian Revoker and Wasteland. So if you're too aggressive, they can just break your mana and then you're locked out of the game. Yeah, it's very, very versatile. That's why it's one of the most played and the most feared decks at the moment but to, to go back to where we started where we're talking about uh Raphael Farino's <laughs> deck yes <laughs> perfect so this deck kind of is a modern workshop deck with modern workshop sensibilities but it kind of harkens back to the older lock heavy uh decks that's what I think when I hear Terra Nova is it's less about the aggressive creatures and more about cutting off your opponent's mana as best as you can. And that was how Terra Nova used to operate. You know, they were running max spheres, they were running max metamorphs, they were running max chalice of the voids, they were running max lodestone golems, max revokers. Like every single spell they cast was stressing out their opponent's mana. And while we can't do that anymore, really, this deck is pretty cool because it's running max spheres, it's running max metamorphs, it's running some sculpting steels, and it it's very very tight like the list doesn't even have room for a soul ring it's running just dudes and 22 lands which is a lot of lands for a shop deck a lot of lands for any deck yeah yeah that's true it's very interesting it's also running the full complement of man lands which is sort of rare in anything other than land still sort of drawing that comparison again that was one of the key parts of the early terra nova decks because they were based entirely on attacking your mana the man lands were like the path of least resistance Oh yeah. Damage. Basically, the ideal outcome is that neither player is able to cast spells, and then you beat them to death with your factories or your mutavolts. It looks like here that the big adaptation, the four null rods, is key 
if you can't have four Thorn of Amethyst and you can't have four Chalice, you need something. And Null Rod is the card that this deck is running that the other decks are not running. Yeah, yes. I mean, I agree. And I think Null Rod is really good right now. Like, it sort of sticks sticks a stick in the spokes of Paradoxical Outcome, which is a big threat right now. And it's probably the best positioned against Workshops. So having four extra sphere effects to put them back on mana i mean sort of equivalent is what uh, null rod is i guess but having that extra effect is very strong in that matchup and it's very good against the field too it's it's interesting an interesting dynamic in the mirror though because you're turning off a bunch of your opponent's creatures but they're still creatures so the matchup i mean the mirror would be very interesting with this deck yeah yeah i can't help but think some, some of the most important cards in the Workshop Mirror are cards that get shut off by Null Rod. So you have Arcbound Ravager, so important. Steel Orbiter, yeah. so important. Oh, yeah. Uh, Walking Ballista, very important. This deck doesn't have any of those because it has to run the Null Rods, and that's that's the key thing. But if you draw the Null Rod... I'm not really the the like Terra Nova expert. This was, the, this was a deck built by the Farinos, and those guys are absolutely uh, amazing players and deck builders. But I can't help but feel that Walking Ballista is so good that it might be worth playing in a deck with four Null Rods, like just because it's so good when Null Rod is attractive. Yeah, I've definitely done things along those lines. Just because two cards have disenergy doesn't mean you can't run them, <laughs> right? Especially if they're if they're powerful enough. Yes, for sure. That's sort of the old um, Null Rod didn't see play for quite a while, or rather, it was sort of sporadic play. It was uh, not in vogue because people were running Tangle Wire for the longest time, and Null Rod and Tangle Wire don't play together very well. That's true. Reevaluating it, I feel like two things jump out at me that make these decks interesting right now. One is just how much more important Null Rod is today than it was six months ago. Yeah. And I think you were hinting to this before, the outcome being the biggest reason. Uh, last year, there were a lot of like when Mentor was one of the biggest decks, there were a lot of like two, three mox decks out there. Yes, and yeah. No Rod's not that exciting against that. But Outcome is like a like a ten mox deck. Something like that. <laughs> yes, it it is very interesting. It seems like the fundamental turn in Vintage has sped up a bit as of late. Yeah, and maybe maybe Workshop decks. I won't say need because the traditional Workshop decks are still doing great, but it, clearly people are experimenting with with Null Rod as a, uh, as a counter to that. Yeah. And I mean, it hits PO, like you said, but I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting time in vintage. I think, um, I'm surprised that we don't see lists like these more often. Um, perhaps they test badly in the mirror. I'm not sure. I haven't run Null Rod in a while. Another thing I was going to say that makes these interesting. And I know this is going to resonate with you because you've talked about both these cards, but uh, the card Karn, Sign of Urza, and the card Traxos are both cards that really don't care if you have Null Rod or not. Yes. And that's before the two of them were printed very recently. Um, you didn't have a full 60 great cards that worked with Null Rod, right? You had to make some some real cuts. There were people running, what was it, Snare Thopter last yeah. year with Null Rod? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and... I mean, they did well with Snare Stopter, but I can't help but think I would rather have a Traxos. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, 
Traxos is really, really tough for a lot of decks to deal with. Like, it's just a 7-7, it comes at you, and you can't jump block it. So what do you do? You either, like, basically, you have to dack it or you have to swords it. And if you don't have one of those options available to you, you just have to ignore it and hope for the best. So it's very aggressive, and it's a pretty cool card. Um, I've had mixed results with it, so... I'm not sure yet, like, whether it's... I mean, it's definitely an, uh, an interesting, unique uh, card for the arsenal of Workshop players, but I'm not sure about its staying power right now. But you say you have played with Karn, and you are you like that one a lot? Oh, yeah. I, I love Karn. It's, uh, it's a pretty cool card. I haven't run it in a traditional build yet, but I've been playing around testing with it, and it's very silly how fast he puts pressure on the board um it's sort of insane to me that he starts at five loyalty because he can just make two blockers if nothing else for two turns and then try to draw and then then he replaces himself so as long as you have time karn gives you ridiculous value under what circumstances do you think that you would decide to play one of these no rod based decks over a regular shops deck like what would the field look like uh, the big thing I think would be uh, the metagame that I'm looking at. If I'm looking at a metagame where um, you're looking at a lot of combo, specifically the Esper um, PO, and if that sort of creeps up on the percentage of shop players, I think I would consider running uh, no rods because I think traditionally the no rod shops have been not super great in the mirror. And you don't want to be worrying about that going into a metagame where you're going to be playing 40% mirror matches. So um, as shop sort of recedes a bit, I think no rod is going to get more powerful. Okay, so we're going to move on to a different workshop variant. I mean, I'm biased, but I've affectionately be calling the deck Brass City Vault, uh, which is kind of a workshop aggro combo deck that both of us have have played a bunch of yes yes and the key here is that the deck is running time vault and you're gonna run some ways of comboing with the time vault so right now the uh the card that we affectionately refer to as key dude the voltaic servant is uh the combo with time vault and he's actually kind of interestingly positioned because he was released with traxos which likes to be untapped as well um so this deck, I think, is really fun. I'm kind of sad that uh, whoever was running it, it, this is Akash, right, who drew into ninth place? Yep, so the me and you have both played different versions of this deck before. This particular list is from my friend Akash Nadu, who got ninth place at the TMD Open, which was a little while back now. Uh, but yeah, he... he Drew, he drew in tonight, so he, his record was good enough to top eight, uh, but there was tiebreaker math issues and uh, ended up in ninth place. So what's fun about this deck is that uh, your opponent is obviously expecting you to drop uh, Sphere of Resistances, you know, a Chalice, you know, he's going to Wasteland you. Um, no big surprise there. He's also going to drop Boundary Inspectors and Draxoses and try to beat your face in. But what this deck can do that no other shop deck can do is open, play Mishra's Workshop, play Mox, play Time Vault, play Voltaic Servant, and kill you on turn one. So 
it's it's sort of an interesting unexpected twist that you can run in this deck and uh the deck that you built's pretty fun because you've got a bunch of tutors in here too if nothing else you've got uh inventor's fair to just go and pick up time vault out of nowhere to to uh to take all the turns yeah i, I would definitely say even more i mean winning on turn one with a workshop deck is hilarious and awesome but even more important than that is just the ability to win within one turn. Yes. Uh, not not necessarily turn one, but in lots of matchups and lots of situations, you know, if your opponent puts you in a position where you are going to lose next turn, this deck can actually win. Whereas in many cases, uh, most workshop decks couldn't win outside of a massive ballista if they're at the right life. Yes. I mean, it's kind of funny that shop decks have always had those top decks that your opponent has been praying that you don't hit. Like it used to be, you know, if you rip Tangle Wire, that Tangle Wire will give you some time to get back into the game. Or you'll rip uh, Ravager and Ravager will let you get back in the game. And more recently, yeah, it's the ballista that you that off the top to kill you that a lot of players dread. So it's kind of interesting to see in this deck that you actually have a rip off the top and take all the turns sort of combo finish. <laughs> and you have I, I mean the you mentioned inventor's fair i've been impressed with that card in this deck i kind of thought it was going to be bad and i'm never sad <laughs> to see it <laughs> which is very weird because inventor's fair has not been super great for me maybe it's because i build my decks more aggressively where inventor's fair tends to shine a bit later in the game i'm not sure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what are the differences that you can recall between the the versions of uh, Brass City Vault that you've built and this one? Oh, well, I mean, I think this list is much better than the lists I've been playing with, but I, I tend to put in more aggressive creatures and cut back a bit on the sphere effects. The most recent list I was running was running the Dark Depths combo in here, and it was running Mirage Mirror, which combos with Dark Depths and with Time Vault to work for both combos, which has been kind of actually unexpectedly like a huge all-star. Mirage Mirror and Vintage is a crazy card. It turns out when you can copy anything on the board, you end up putting your opponent in crazy positions where they don't want to Oath, where they don't want to play combo pieces, things like that. Yeah, you were telling me you uh, beat a Dark Depths player because you're a Mirage Mirror, just if they played Dark Step, you would get a 2020 as well. Oh yeah, it's it's done that, which I think was really funny. I have copied other people's time vaults that have been unsuspecting and sort of taken all the turns from my opponent's time vaults. Copied, you know, Oath Target. It's 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 a very sort of fun card, but I don't know. I'm not sure if it is a tier one sort of material. Well, we have both been playing versions of this deck for a while before Voltaic Servant was printed. Yes. And I think we were both trying out a bunch of different things. You know, the Forge Masters are decent and, you know, Mirror and Inventor's Fair and all these different variations. But I think uh, Servant and Traxos coming out in the same set kind of cemented a more clear path forward to the deck. Now, I don't know, right? This isn't a, yeah. a top-tier established archetype. Right. <laughs> But it, it certainly gives the deck some direction. Yeah, I mean, it definitely gives you an option. The deck that you've given me, it sort of splashes into the regular shops deck and lets it take it into a new direction as far as you want to go. 
I think it, if people would give this a spin, I think they would find it a bit refreshing, but I don't know how it pairs up in the mirror exactly. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I'm not totally sure either. Sometimes it feels like it is just unbeatably better. Yeah. Right. Yes. Sometimes it feels like you're playing all the same good cards, except you could just win out of nowhere and your opponent can't, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way, right? <laughs> yeah. If you draw three Voltaic Servants, it's not so good, but... So, so I'm not sure yet. I I would guess that it is favored in the mirror. I think so. You want to dirtle. You want to dirtle pretty hard if you can in the mirror, if that's available to you, if you're not able to just beat them to death very quickly. You win a stalemate with this deck because eventually you will combo out. Yeah, I, I feel like it's probably favored, but not by much, right? Just I think it just has a tiny edge because of that. I think so, yeah. But it's, it, it is tough to know, and I think there's a lot of room to mess around with different ways of building it. Yeah. It's definitely weaker against Null Rod. It takes a deck that Null Rod hurts a lot, and it makes Null Rod hurt it even more. To be fair, though, you're still playing dudes, right? How many of your cards are totally turned off by Null Rod? I think this is something that a lot of players don't really understand in the Workshop matchup. If you bring in Null Rods against a Workshop aggro deck... You're going to play your Null Rod that's going to be spending your mana for the turn, and your opponent is going to smile at you and play another dude, and it's like you've time-walked yourself in some circumstances. I agree, this deck gets hit a little bit harder than the regular Shops deck, but you're still beating people to death with a lot of robots. And, and Traxos definitely helps there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I want to talk about a Workshop deck that is very near and dear. <laughs> <laughs> to both of our hearts. I want you to explain to our listeners what the deck Tiny Robots is. Okay, so imagine to yourself you're playing against a workshop opponent and your workshop opponent puts a Memnite, which is a zero casting cost, 1-1 one, one creature with no abilities on the stack. And you look at that card and you look at the force of will in your hand and you think very, very hard about whether you want to force of will the Memnite. And then your pride gets the better of you and you choose not to two for one yourself for a zero casting cost one one. It comes into play. It triggers a Genesis Chamber. Your opponent skull clamps both of those creatures, draws four cards, combos out and kills you with a cranial plating. This is the essence of the tiny robot deck, which was a very fun deck that you and I worked on a few years ago before Lodestone Golem was restricted. It was a Mishra's Workshop deck, and the core of the deck was small robots, as the name implies, with Genesis Chamber, Skull Clamp, and the attack step. And it was a glorious deck, and it had a ridiculous matchup against the Mentor decks of the time. If you look at a, a modern Workshop deck as being sort of less lock piece heavy and more aggressive and cheaper creatures than Terra Nova was. Tiny Robots is the extreme beyond that. The creatures are even cheaper down to zero mana. <laughs> it's even more aggressive. It was not running a full set of lock pieces back when you could. Yes. This was just after Chalice was restricted. And that I think is what enabled the deck, but we were running thorns, full thorns. We were running full, Lodestone Golems, which is kind of funny as sort of an aside that 
we were building it, and those were our lock pieces for Thorn of Amethyst, for Lodestone Golems. And at that point, running that, I felt sort of naked. And now we have fewer lock pieces than that, and that's just sort of the way of life. That's just where we are. <laughs> Deck was a lot of fun. Basically, some games, you would drop 10 power on turn one and swing for crazy damage on turn two. Other games, you would drop a Thorn of Amethyst on turn one, and then a Lodestone Golem on turn two, and then a Tangle Wire on turn three, and your opponent's aggressive hand was just total garbage. But it was glorious, killing people with Mem Knights and Signal Pests in Vintage. So we are going to talk about a Mana Drain Vintage Magic podcast, Power 9, the Power 9 Tiny Robots cards from 9 to 1. <laughs> uh, the... Oh. The nine cards that make Tiny Robots what it is. Oh, man. And it's so hard because they're all just so near and dear. They are. But we had to <laughs> we had to force rank them. <laughs> so number nine, the time twister of the group. Yeah, uh, We have a Hangerback Walker. Now, the Hangerback Walker is a card that is played in other workshop decks, but talk to me about it in Tiny Robots. So... Hangerback Walker is a great mirror card in Shop's decks. You bring it down, it gets bigger, it makes more blockers, it's always good, it gets better as the game goes on. Whatever. In Tiny Robots, you don't care about that. You play Hangerback Walker for X equals 1, it comes into play, it triggers your Genesis Chamber, and then you Skull Clamp it three times and draw six cards, which is amazing because you just drew another bunch of robots that you're going to play and trigger Chamber again, and you're going to combo like crazy. So Hangerback was great because whenever you saw a Hangerback in the deck, you knew that at some point you were probably going to draw six cards. <laughs> and obviously, uh, this is a high synergy deck, so a lot of the cards we mentioned are going to be good because of the other cards on the list. But that's that's exactly my memory, too. Hangerback is sort of a different card in this list. It's good in other shops decks, but in Tiny Robots, it, it does something else. Right, you play it at a low number. Uh, I have played, and I'm sure you have played Hangerback Walker at zero. <laughs> he gives you a bit of flexibility too. If he comes into play, you're running Ravager. So I remember at least once I had an opponent play a Serenity, and then drop a Ravager. You know, sack your entire board and put it on Hangerback and do Hangerback things. Like you still have those options available. So it's it's a great card. Number eight of the Tiny Robots, Power Nine, Chief of the Foundry. We talked before, I usually run this card in the sideboard. As you said, uh, it's kind of expensive. <laughs> Three mana is a lot for Tiny Robots. Yeah, it's kind of weird to talk about in a shop deck how something that costs three mana is expensive, right? You just tap your workshop and you get it, right? But like Chief of the Foundry is going to be probably a turn two play. Otherwise, that's the only thing you're going to have at play. You're going to have a 2-3, and he doesn't do anything, really. <laughs> this is true. And and Tiny Robots had typically fewer mana than the average shop stack. It, it made the higher casting costs more difficult. But on the other hand, you also just had more creatures on the board, and still more creatures on the board than a shop stack would have today. You're just trying to empty your hand, which means the chief is doing more work. Yeah. And and I found that it's good in some situations where your other cards are bad. It's yes. good if your opponent brings in Null Rod. That's the most important thing. 
if your tiny robot shenanigans are being put a stop to, then Chief gets much better, which isn't quite as fun, but, you know, some people think winning is fun, so in that case, Chief is pretty good. <laughs> but it is only eight on the yes, list. Yes, yes. For good reason. The next one is when things are going to start getting real surprising. Card number seven uh, for Tiny Robots is Gaia's Cradle. So <laughs> tell me why Gaia's Cradle is on this list. So <laughs> this is the list in its essence is sort of a combo list that can aggro and as a backup can control you a little bit. So when you're dumping your hand on turn one or two, Cradle is going to make a bunch of mana and it's going to fuel your other shenanigans. When we were testing this list, what we discovered is, you know, obviously we figured out that if you're comboing out and using a bunch of cards to draw other cards, Telerian Academy is going to be great. But Telerian Academy ended up being so good that we ended up putting in a couple cradles at some points just to sort of mimic that effect. That if you're comboing out and drawing cards and you hit one of these lands that generates mana according to how many dudes you have in play, you're basically going to win the game. So Cradle uh, was a nice addition for what we wanted it to do. I don't think we ever built a list with four guys' cradles in it. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. I, I don't I don't think I ever really wanted more than one. Yeah. I think you could probably make an argument for two. But adding that first one was really interesting because the Academy, like you said, the Academy is so good that the Cradle as a bad Academy is still <laughs> not that bad. Yeah, I think the most saturated I got at any point is I put two in. And then I really hated the second one. So I was running a Telerian, I was running a Cradle, and then I had put in an Expedition map. But I think the map got cut eventually. Sweet. I forgot about Expedition map. It's <laughs> a fun one. Yeah. Uh, so so next on our list, we have another card that you're probably familiar with, Steel Overseer. Yeah. Steel Overseer is pretty much a staple now. We were playing him before it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, it's kind of the same as Chief, where you just have more guys, so Overseer does more work. However, Overseer is slower, but it accelerates, and in worst-case scenarios, he is a 1-1, which enables a bunch of the other stuff in your deck. So he's uh, he's an all-star. Yeah, I think it wouldn't apply now, but the fact that I had four Overseers and two or three Chiefs was why I was able to beat other shop stacks with tiny robots because they didn't have that. Now, yeah. now they do. Oh, yeah. It's not quite the same. I mean, people didn't get Overseer. Like, if you were playing in the mirror and you waited a little while for your opponent to drop his revokers on whatever, then you drop your Overseer. And if Overseer untaps, like, it is very hard for your opponent to get back in the game, you know, barring a crazy board disparity. Yeah, absolutely. And... For everything that Overseer does in a workshop deck now, you just have more creatures in play <laughs> with tiny robots. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. It, it just did a little bit extra. Speaking of having more creatures in play, card number five, one of the archetypal cards of tiny robots. In fact, I think the first time I saw a deck in the category of tiny robots, it was named after this card. I, I think I so. I don't remember what it was. It was... I believe the origins of this deck come from before most of the vintage cards were released on MTGO. And like the heart of this deck spawned on this, this format on MTGO without the power nine. And it was running 
this card in it, which is just amazing. So we're talking about Genesis Chamber. For those that are not familiar, Chamber, as long as it is untapped, whenever a non-token creature comes into play for either player, that player puts a 1-1 Mer artifact token into play, which is crazy if you are playing four dudes per turn. Yeah, it is a card that does not look that great when you read it for the first time. Uh, I mean, it's symmetrical, which is usually bad. It's Even if it wasn't symmetrical, it doesn't seem like it does that much. And it's a tempo loss to play it? Like, what's happening here? But uh, when you fill your deck with incredibly cheap cards, it can generate a lot of power very quickly. Yes, so we mentioned this with Hangerback and with Overseer. These your creatures are getting counters. They're getting bigger. There's more of them. Like you're going wide and you're going tall. So it's a lot for uh, an aggro or an opposing aggro deck to handle. Your your opponent will get creatures off of this, uh, <laughs> but the the whole deck is sort of built to like you are getting more mileage out of having a one one artifact creature in play yes. than your opponent is. Oh, for like sure. the entire point and all uh, the cards we talked about before help that right just having one chief out is gonna make a giant difference if your opponent plays a bunch of creatures yeah so it's it's great it you it, they make you more mana they get bigger they go wide oh it's great chamber is great the next card on our list card number four is is another card that many people look at and do not respect <laughs> and often it often terrifies them uh, number four is Signal Pest. Yes, yeah, Signal Pest. This creature, at the beginning of many of my matches, was looked uh, looked at with confusion, but then a healthy respect sort of grows into your opponent if your match goes the way that it should, because Pest cannot be blocked, and it makes all of your dudes bigger. So all of those 1-1s turn into 2-1s that you are more than happy to trade anything with on your opponent's side. He's a great card, and he costs one mana, so you can play him and Chamber off of a Misha's Workshop. So get get your game going. That was a really common play, I think. Just turn one, Misha's Workshop, Genesis Chamber, Signal Pest. And then you have a creature to pump your, with the Signal Pest. It gets things going. It, it works with Overseer and Chief. I think it's, it's worth reiterating that this is a one-drop in a Workshop deck that's very, very rare. For a while, that was because of Chalice of the Void. You didn't want to play any one-drops because then you couldn't cast them through Chalice. This was a one of the first workshop decks after Chalice was restricted, as you said. Kind of that save, paved the way for cards like Signal Pass to be playable. Yes. And the other sort of aspect of this is that Mental Misstep also existed. And while Signal Pest does a lot of good stuff on the board, one of his perhaps more important jobs was to eat Mental Misstep because of your other car one casting cost cards being so good. That is true. That is true. And we've talked about this. I think that something that people don't notice right away when <laughs> you have a workshop deck and you have one drops that can be misstepped, and it, it is true. If you are playing a workshop deck and you play a turn one signal pest or a different one drop and your opponent missteps it, you don't feel good because... Other workshop decks are immune to mistakes, so like, why are why are you falling for this? But once you go to game two, and it's worth it just for the look on their face. Nobody has built a sideboard that could keep their missteps in and keep their removal in, right? Like they have to decide. Oh yeah. Whatever they do, 
it's not going to be they either cut the missteps anyway or they cut something else that they really wanted so it's not really that bad um they don't you know people don't have decks that are prepared to be a workshop deck plus a bunch of one drops that's, yeah. that's not how people build decks oh yeah for sure it's it's very interesting uh seeing how people do that like if unless your opponent is very good very skilled they know their deck very well and they know their game plan against a regular shop deck very well it's going to be very difficult for them to improvise and decide what cards to keep in do they keep in the missteps probably not should they who knows yeah i'm, I'm really not sure it's possible uh but it's certainly is it going to be their optimal game plan so me and you have a slight disagreement. I think Pest should be card number three <laughs> rather than this next card. I probably would have even put it further down the list. But I, I do have to admit it is, along with Genesis Chamber, the most iconic card in the deck. It is the card that perhaps most makes a deck tiny robots. It is the tiniest robot. <laughs> it's Memnite. Memnite. Zero mana, one, one. With no abilities. And... Memnite yeah. is great. Uh, to go back to what we were talking about, like with Pest, like the dream drop for me in this deck is to drop your Mishra's Workshop, tap it for some mana, drop your Genesis Chamber into play, drop about two Memnites, and then use your last mana for a Signal Pest. And then your opponent is staring at eight damage coming at it the next turn, and you still have more stuff going on so he is the tiniest robot and he turns on so many shenanigans it's it's true and if, it, if you think about what we were talking about with all the other cards uh, we kept saying oh well this card you know it's different in this deck because you're just emptying your hand and it's different you know overseer's better because you're dumping your hand uh chamber's better because you're just throwing so many creatures out there memnite is the card that does that it's the card because you are willing to run Memnite and your opponent is not, that is why you get to take better advantage of those cards. And it is it is a cost that you pay to do that, but the upside is that you get maximum value sure. out of all those things that reward you for having a bunch of one Oh, yes, for sure. I have experienced several times my opponents staring at a Memnite on the stack and trying to decide whether to counterspell it or not. And that's sort of an interesting vintage experience i don't think most of my opponents have never seen a mem knight being played before so what do you do in this situation he's a great great little card yeah you know you know your opponent's up to something you just don't know what it is before i move to card number two mem knight and single pass are, have these two relatives that didn't make it to the list ornithopter and vault scourge yes yeah i've played both these cards they sometimes fit in the deck basically they're just creatures that you can get out incredibly mm -hmm. quickly they're not as good as signal pest and memnite you might run them if you think man i really want six signal pests <laughs> but they they are cards that have shown up in these decks in the past yeah it's kind of crazy ornithopter is like the original tiny robot but it doesn't make the list and a lot of it has to do with the next card number two number two is Skullclamp, one of the most horrifying cards from a variety of formats. Skullclamp has legendary magic card status. It's almost surprising that Skullclamp has not made its way into more uh, vintage decks. Yes. It's not legal in Legacy. Oh, no, it's banned in basically every format that it would be available in. Yeah, so you, could, you can only play it in vintage. And 
kind of the entire rest of the deck is built to give you things that you can attach a skull clamp to. Yes, and it was a great strategic element of the deck of trying to decide. You have this entire board of tiny robots. You've got some of these mirror tokens. You have a signal pest. You've got a steel overseer. And all of a sudden, you land a skull clamp. Do you keep your dudes around to attack? Do you draw a bunch of cards? I don't know, but it ended up making me make a lot of decisions based on how many cards I wanted and what I wanted to do with my board. And th this is very much what you were talking about before with Academy, where sometimes this is a combo deck. Oh, yeah. When all the pieces start coming together, if you have a Genesis Chamber out, oh, I, I, I'll skull clamp my signal pest. I draw two cards. One of those cards is a Memnite. I play Memnite. That makes another Mir token. Well, that's two extra mana for my Cradle. I'll tap that, and then I'll clamp both of those to draw four cards. You could draw like 30 cards in a turn in a workshop deck. It got to a point where if I had Skull Clamp out, I wouldn't play my land drop until the last possible second. Because if you get your combo going, if you hit an Academy or a Cradle, it was going to be game over because you were going to draw 90% of your deck and your opponent just was not going to be able to come back. Pretty brutal. The other cool thing that Skull Clamp did at the time was it let you go sort of over the top of your opponent. The Mentor decks are playing Gush, and so you're playing Skull Clamp, and it was sort of an interesting matchup if it got to that point because you were both drawing cards and playing uh, playing dudes and sort of reacting. And basically the, the mascot of this deck is Skull Clamp. It's a terrifying card. and objectively one of the most powerful cards ever printed period yes. so objectively one of the most powerful cards in the deck and yet we did not give it the number one spot now there's a good case for it having the number one spot absolutely but i think i think that this next card has won me more games <laughs> and in particular more games that it shouldn't have won me yes <laughs> that, that came out of nowhere and this card we have not hinted at uh, but our our number one of the tiny robots power nine the black lotus of tiny robots <laughs> is cranial plating oh my god this card is so good so this is sort of like while your opponent is watching you combo out something they might notice maybe not maybe they've given in to the nui i don't know but one thing that you do as the tiny robots player is if possible you leave a signal pest or a hanger back token that is not summoning sick available. Like you do not clamp that card unless you absolutely have to, because in your drawing of 30 cards, eventually you're going to hit cranial plating and you're going to play that plating. And then you're going to kill your opponent with a 41 creature. Yeah. Plating is when, when you are going off on an absurd skull clamp turn, plating is the card that will let you win right now, as opposed to, just generate a bunch of card advantage and win over time. But even outside of that, the card is so good. I've, I've had total non-combo draws that win on turn three because you you just... The, the player you're talking about before, you're the good hand of Mishra's Workshop, Genesis Chamber, Single Pest, two Memnites. <laughs> that, as we've described, is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven artifacts. If on your second turn you use that workshop to play a cranial plating and equip well now that's eight artifacts including the plating that's i don't know you're 
something 16 yeah. damage, something like that. But more than that. Five one ones that are dealing 10 on their own. Oh, yes. 18 damage. Yeah, 18 damage. And that's assuming you don't have any artifacts to follow up with. Yeah. Now, that's, that is a very good hand. But <laughs> there are lots of very similar hands. Uh, the, the deck just gets lots of artifacts into play yes. very quickly. In, in my experience, the only card that was my opponents were as afraid of as cranial plating was Lodestone Golem, which I think is appropriate. But I thought it was very interesting. Opponents didn't seem to care as much about Skull Clamp as I thought they would, but plating they hated. Yeah, I mean, Skull Clamp will, will win a game if you have the time and the mana to use it. But sometimes you don't. If, if you don't have an academy, sometimes you're a little a little uh, tight on mana. Some boards are not as effective with Skull Clamp. And it's a tempo sink. You're losing your attackers mm -hmm. to get the cards. Now, it's amazing, but plating is sort of the opposite, where it takes time away from your opponent rather than giving it to them. Yeah, that's um, true. It closes out the game so fast. And that's, that's why Ornithopter was okay in the deck, because, because you could plating it, which took all the terrible things about the card, and we're like, well, this is actually okay. And that's why Vault Scourge got played, right? Because it's yeah. a flying creature. Invasion. It's also really nice in a non-going-off scenario that you just clamp up your Memnite, and now it's a 6-1, and it trades with something good on their side. Right? It takes <laughs> your creatures, which are... Objectively creatures terrible. Which are not yeah, they're good, not good. And makes it... They need to deal with it. And once they deal with it, the next Memnite yeah. is that big. I've seen that that game happen a lot. <laughs> I, just I mean, it. we've talked a lot about like the crazy things the deck does, but honestly, the way it played out was super surprising because you're playing uh, sphere effects, you're playing lodestone golems, you're playing these platings and skull clamps. Your opponent has removal and they use it. So it was actually really funny how many games you ended by swinging with a memnite. A bear token and like one other dude you were swinging with four power to close out the game because all of your good cards were destroyed or mm -hmm. countered two signal pests yeah. pumping each other <laughs> it's not that board a lot <laughs> we just have some blockers but i can get my two signal pests yeah them. yeah uh, it's good so sadly we've been talking about this deck in the past tense yes for a few reasons i think it's just not it, it was never clearly the best deck, but it was certainly a competitor. And nowadays it's not a competitor. I think the biggest region is Walking Ballista. Walking Ballista is currently the best tiny robot and it destroys all of the other tiny robots. You want to run four Walking Ballistas in the deck, but at the same time, a Ballista with three counters counters three Skull Clamp activations. <laughs> That's a huge, yes. a huge swing. It kills the pest with a cranial plating on it, right? It does, it does a lot of damage. To oh the yeah, deck. I mean, as sort of a minor anecdote, I was playing at a team serious event against Mark Trogdon, who is a legendary Ohio Workshop player, and I was playing Tiny Robots, and he was playing the regular Workshop deck at the time, which Tiny Robots was massively favored in this mirror this mirror match. However, I deployed some of my robots on turn one. It didn't really matter what they were. He plays a Workshop, a Black Lotus, and casts a Triskelion, and then the game is just over. And now, you don't have to get to six mana to kill all of the tiny robots. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely brutal. But I would say, whether Workshop players want to admit it or not, that there is quite a bit of tiny robots in 
the modern workshop deck. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if you look at where workshops used to be and where they are now, a lot of the kind of principles that went into Tiny Robots of like, this card is not as good, but I can cast it every time. Yes kind of works their way. I absolutely agree. We go all the way back to sort of the Terra Nova builds, which sort of are the classic embodiment of shops, which is to play a lock piece every turn. And now the current builds, you're playing a bunch of little robots that all work together to shut down your opponent's plans or to beat their face in. And it's a beautiful spiritual successor to this deck. Although not quite as combo-tastic. Some, some of the fun is missing. <laughs> So what what do you think you would need to see? Like, do you think do you think there's a fix to uh, walking ballista and lack of lizard arm, or do you think it's just probably not? Um, I think that if the spheres were switched, if sphere of resistance were restricted and thorn of amethyst were unrestricted, this deck would have a chance. Mm-hmm. But as it is right now, okay. I don't think it can survive. There are too few non-detrimental lock pieces to work with we didn't talk much about revoker revoker is incredibly important in the yes. deck. we didn't talk about it because it's it's just, it's just so as good. important in every other workshop deck yeah but that if there was more if you could play eight revokers oh, yeah. right then you would have an answer to the cards that beat you and i don't think that the spyglass or sure spyglass i don't think that that's oh no it it doesn't trigger Genesis Chamber. That card sucks, yo. But you could have a worse card, like a three mana one one Phyrexian Revoker. Yeah, right? it's definitely way worse, yeah, sure. but it'll be worth looking at. I mean, the deck isn't that far off. It's just that the current iterations of shops basically do everything that this deck would want, except for have a combo finish. You're making a bunch of small dudes. Mm-hmm. They're all synergistic together in a crazy way, um, and they put pressure on the opponents. So it's just a trade off you have to make to be good, I guess. So we've been talking a lot about workshops today, some fun workshop variants. I think it's time for us to have the lightning bolt round. <laughs> I'm going to rapid fire some questions at you. Are you I ready, Dwayne? I am 100% Dwayne? ready. Let's do this. What are your favorite kinds? Uh, I love pink or teal dragon shields with um, perfect fits. So I love to double sleeve my cards. Do you have uh, a favorite artist or a particular favorite card art? I was very sad to find out that some of the Team Serious guys missed out on buying the Lodestone Golem art. I would really like that. I think that art's really cool. I think Metalworker is pretty cool. I think the um, Arcbound Ravager is pretty cool. Like, there's a bunch of cool artifact dudes. Shinier, the better. If you run into a tournament in your hometown, what is the best place to get dinner after the tournament? It depends on the current BAC of the group and what time it is. But <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that I love Tio's, which is a Mexican restaurant in Ann Arbor. The food is, you know, the food is okay, but you go there for the tequila. Their specialty tequila is awesome, so their margaritas are great. But if it went real late and it's getting a bit tired, then you go to Fleetwood, which is an Ann Arbor establishment. It's a 24-hour greasy diner. You can go there at any time of day, no matter how crappy you're feeling, and the wait staff will treat you like shit. That's, that is important. Do you remember the first deck that you played in a vintage tournament? Yes, it was a black-green reanimator deck with Buried Alive and Living Death and Birds of Paradise and Spirit Mongers and awful, awful stuff. And I got completely destroyed by a powered Arcbound Ravager deck, and it really opened my eyes to the format. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds about right as, as your origin story. <laughs> I like that. 
How about the first tournament you remember doing really well in? I was playing the traditional aggro shops before Lodestone Golem was printed at a uh, the card store in Ann Arbor, Get Your Game On, in their previous location. They were having a, a tournament where they were going to give away a Mock Sapphire and some Jaces for second place and all these very generous prizes. And uh, I went there. It was like a 32-person tournament, not too, you know, not too big, but it was the first tournament that I had made to top eight. And it was interesting because all the other people in the top eight were a bunch of idiots from Ohio called Team Sirius, and they were discussing how they were going to give a, or divvy up the prizes. And I had to come up and tell them, I, you know, I still want to play. I'm not with you guys. And I ended up making them play this top eight. <laughs> and I got all the way to the finals where uh, my aggro shop deck got destroyed by a uh, Bant fish deck in spectacular fashion. So this one's pretty open-ended. I want to hear a story about how you got a card that you have. Could be a piece of power. Could be a, a basic island. Okay. I have been trying to get into vintage basically my entire adult life. So when I, w I first got into Magic, that story about when I got demolished at a tournament, my first vintage tournament, I was about 16. And ever or since then, I was been trying to get my power and to get into the format. So slowly, over years, I was acquiring uh, a workshop every now and then. Every now and then, I was able to pick up a mock slowly and surely on my delivery driver's salary, picking up this power, these expensive vintage cards. So eventually, I graduate from college, and I got a, a very thankful to and fortunate to have received a nice job right out of college, and I got a signing bonus out of it. And the first thing I did with that signing bonus was to take $2,000, talk to my friend who is selling out of vintage, and I bought his Black Lotus, his Mox Pearl, and his Mox Jet. And that was basically the finishing touch of the power that I needed because I don't play blue cards. One last thing. Uh, if you are going to give a piece of advice to our listening audience, to a player who is either just starting to play vintage or has been playing for a little bit, but like wants to get a little bit better, what would you give them? I mean, the first piece to like preface all of this is uh, to be careful. Don't overextend yourself financially for these cards. Most events that are worth playing are proxy. So don't worry about acquiring cards too fast. Um, you can probably borrow them if that comes up. But the in-game sort of advice that I would give you is... Be conscious of your losses because you're going to learn a lot from your losses if you're receptive. And if you're playing against good opponents, you're going to lose a lot. And that's going to be great because you can learn a lot from the great people in the formats. Your, uh, your Kevin Kranz, your Steve Menendians, uh, all kinds of players in the Northeast that I would, could name. But try to be gracious and try to p take as much as you can from your loss as possible. Well, thank you very much for hanging out with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. We're going to have to cut a lot of crap out of this to make it fit, but it'll be fine. That was Dwayne Haddix, this is Andy Probasco, and this has been the Mandatory Vintage Magic Podcast.
If you like the show, head over to iTunes, give us a rating or a review. If you want more episodes, please consider contributing to the Managerain Patreon at patreon.com slash themanagerain. Patreon subscribers get access to the Managerain Discord channel, and it helps keep the podcast coming and the website running. If you have any feedback about the show or you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about, leave us a message on the Managerain website or send a tweet to at themanagerain. Thanks for listening and good game, everybody.